Good morning. I always appreciate when Cliff gives me the opportunity to fill in for him. And uh, one of the things I've always appreciated about Cliff, one of the great qualities he has, is his humility. And because of that humility, I know that Cliff did not instruct Judy to take a picture of the sanctuary this morning when I preach, so that she can take a picture of the sanctuary next week when Cliff preaches, so we can compare pictures on the... So I know he won't do that, because Cliff is a humble leader, so... I appreciate that. All right. Uh, you know, I'm getting a little older, and uh, one of the nice things, not that many things, not that many nice things about getting older, but one of them is when we have a crazy election cycle, like the one we just finished, it's easier for me to say, yeah, we've sort of seen this before. I can kind of get my brain around a transition from somebody like Barack Obama to Donald Trump because I saw Carter to Reagan. And I saw Clinton to Bush. But so, the sense of, I've seen this before. The one thing I will say that it seems like now that we have become more polarized in what we're expected to believe. Now it's, you either have to believe that our election system has four million fraudulent votes or there's absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. Or it's, let nobody else into the country or open the doors and let every... So we've become, seem more polarized in, in, in what, we're, what we're expected to believe and, and, and uh, more polarized what people believe the true facts are. We all, we all learned a new term the last the past year, this idea of fake, fake news. Facts are no longer facts. They are... Ideas that are true if you need them to be true, or they're false, or they're fake if you need them to be false. Truth has become more relative than ever before, and that's why I think it's important, very important, that Cliff has chosen to take the body through the book of Romans, because Paul's message, ultimately in Romans, is that of a single gospel by a single God, the good news that we are to know it in our mind and believe it in our heart and live it in our bodies, offering our bodies a living sacrifice to the good news, that good news of a sovereign, holy, omniscient, immutable God who creates the world and He creates man to be in relationship with Him. Man rejects that God and puts himself in the path of the wrath of that God, that God chose to reconcile with man through His Son, His perfect, fully God, fully man Son, Jesus, who dies for us. That death atones for our sins, and His resurrection proves that the power of sin has been overcome. That's the gospel, right? Why do we call it the good news? What's good about it? Why is it the good news? It's good because it's God's plan. A God that loves us and a God that wants to be in relationship with us and has a character and wants to be known. And He loves us not because of anything we've done, just like He said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. It's not because of how big you are 
I'm not loving you because of anything we've done. It's the good news because it's God's plan. It's not our plan. Because if it was our plan, we'd, we, we would change it. We'd do that. We, we'd make the mistake of either thinking, watering it down. It, it, it's, it's, it's not enough grace that more people, should be, more people should be saved regardless of faith. Or we'd tighten it up. That there's too much grace. In addition to faith, there's more that I have to do. So it's not our plan because we would change it. There's not more that I have to do to earn my salvation. It's the good news because it's always been, it's always been God's plan from the very beginning, from the time of Adam in Genesis to Abraham to Moses to David, prophesied by the prophets. This has always been God's plan, always been God's gospel. It's the good news because it deals with sin, something people need. They need forgiveness. They need to deal with guilt in their life. It's a good news because it leaves us without a burden of works, of having to continually earn our salvation. When I was in Spain a few years ago, I saw that loud and clear with Muslims on a 100-degree day in Spain after driving for hours, and the first thing they have to do is get down on this hot asphalt parking lot and pray because they always have to earn it, and, and they are solely responsible. They can't get their brain around the idea of someone else taking care of their sins, someone else atoning for their sins. They are, have to take responsibility for sin, and they have to constantly earn it. We don't have that burden. That's why it's good news. And finally, it's a good news because it offers us a glorious purpose, sanctification, becoming like Christ, and a destination to glorify God in eternity in sanctification. But people miss the good news, right? So today we're going to examine a passage in Acts in which Paul engages some people who have missed the good news. He's in Athens. We're going to examine that passage, and then I want to talk about how people today, categories of people today, who miss the good news. So let's turn, if we can, to Acts chapter 17. I don't have it up this morning, but I hear we have Bibles, which is great. And I know many of you have Bibles on your phone, so you have no excuse for not following along. So he's in, in Athens. Let's talk a little bit about Athens back then. At the time of Paul, Athens was sort of a former great city. Its great, greatest years had been about 500 years before, something like that. It had been a world power. It had achieved magnificent military conquest, Battle of Marathon, Alexander the Great. It achieved amazing things in philosophy, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. Amazing achievements in art and in math. It was the place of the first democracy, first democratic state in Athens. But now, it was in decline. It was in decline. So enter Paul. Let's talk about Paul. Sometimes we forget about Paul. Paul was not another Galilean, right? Paul was from Tarsus. And Tarsus, if you look on a map, I don't have a map here. I don't know why I'm pointing back here. But Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey, which is right next to Greece. That's where Paul was from. And Paul, being raised as a rabbi, he got a classical education in the school of Tarsus, 
which rivaled the school of Athens and the school of Alexandria. So Paul got this classical education in Tarsus, and so he had great respect for the people he was encountering in Athens because he'd gone to a rival school. And so let's read it. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul encounters three types. The first type are Epicureans. Epicureans are materialistic people. Live for the day. Do what feels good and avoid at all cost what feels bad. It's all about just what happens in this life. That's the Epicurean people. Then you have, you may know people like that today. You have Stoics. Stoics, life is about struggle and enduring hardship and doing your best. I am the captain of my, what is it, the poem, you know, I control my own destiny and be proud. Life is about enduring struggle. And it's not about a God overseeing, a God who makes all things work together for good. That they, they don't have any concept of that. It's about being proud and enduring hardship and, and struggle. And that's what life's, that's what the value in life is. And you have idol worshipers. They are religious, but they've created God in their own image. Their thoughts, they're religious, but their thoughts about God are essentially from within. So Paul has to sort of assess this whole landscape. There's also Jews there, and there's also some converts there. So he's got to assess this whole landscape of people around, and he's got to do it with respect, but he's obsess, uh, no, obsessing, assessing the landscape of people. How does he do it? Well, the text gives us some indications. First, it says right there, he observed. He observed people. Second, he felt. It says his spirit was being provoked. Now, I can't tell from the scripture whether that means he was like feeling bad for them in a mourning kind of sense or pity kind of sense or whether he was angry. I suspect it was probably a little bit of both because he saw how lost they were. And there was probably part of that that bothered him and there was part of, part of that where he felt bad for their, their lostness. And third, so he observed, he felt, and he engaged, he conversed. So see what happens, beginning in verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So, the Areopagus, and it's actually still there, there's ruins, it was a big amphitheater on what they call Mars Hill in Athens, and that's where they went to have lectures and to hear speakers, and so they brought them here. So, that tells me that he had piqued their interest, that he had created a thirst in them through his life through the way he engaged them, 
That he had, and that's something we need to be doing in the way we engage people. We want to create a thirst in them for what we have. And I, it, it seems to me that that's what he succeeded in doing, in creating in them a thirst for, them, for him to tell them more about what he believes. So let's see what Paul says. Starts off. So Paul stood, verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe, there's that word again, that you are very religious in all respects. So you're showing them respect, right? He's not just putting them down. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He found the perfect hook. He found the metaphor. He found the object lesson. This altar to an unknown God. They did not know the God that they worshipped. So Paul is going to take the opportunity to tell them who this God is. Beginning in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And they had very large temples in Athens. The true God created everything, he's telling them, and it was one God who did so. This is the same point Paul makes in Romans 1, that God revealed himself to all man in creation, and man rejected that revelation. He goes on, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, he doesn't need anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God didn't just create, but he sustains everything. He wasn't a God that created the world and then just stepped out of the picture of the way deists believe. He continues to sustain everything, an ongoing act of creation. So Paul talks about the same thing in his letter to the Colossians. He talks about God holding all things together. So that's the second quality of this God that he wants the Athenians to understand about, understand. He goes on, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also we also are his children. So he makes actually a couple points here. One is that God, this God who creates and sustains, also determines all things. He determines the fate of people and nations. I had the opportunity to preach back in August on the book of Habakkuk. And that's actually one of the main points of that book also, that, that, that God determines the fate and the times, appointed times of nations. The second point Paul's making here is that God's desire is that people would seek after him, even in their blindness, as children seeking after a parent. And he uses their own poetry in support of his position, that they have this poetry that talks about how they are God's children. And when he uses the word grope there, even groping after him. The, the illusion is to Cyclops in Homer's The Odyssey, where Cyclops is in a cave with one eye, groping after Odysseus. So it's the same idea. 
God wants us to be people seeking after him. So reading on verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. God's desire is that we would seek after him. Excuse me. If we want, his, his point is, if we want, if you want a relationship with God, you have to get away from idol worship. You have to get away from this idea that God is something that we determine in our own mind. That really doesn't work with the idea of God as Father. This idea of a God that I create in my own mind. I've been to some 12-step meetings, and I think 12-step programs are great, but I have heard people say in still 12-step programs that they, they're higher, they have found they have found a higher power that works for them. It's basically a higher power that they've created. It's sort of the same folly. We have a few moms here. Let me try this analogy. Moms going through the pain of childbirth. Imagine if one of your kids were to say to you, Hey, Mom, I created you. Or, Hey, Mom, you're a figment of my imagination. Your mom would say, you want to make a bet? <laughs> you know, what's the, are, I don't, are we still allowed to quote Bill Cosby? He used to say, I, took you, I brought you in this world and I can take you out. It's the same, same idea. So to see the fool, the arrogance, if one of your children were to say that to you, Dad, you're just a figment of my imagination. You want to make a bet? This, this, I'll make this belt a figment. You know, right? That's what my dad would have said to me. But it, you know, the, the arrogance and the foolishness of, on the one hand, I want to have a relationship with God as my father, but on the other hand, he's going to be something that I create in my own mind. So Paul goes on, verse 30. He's not going in for the kill. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising, raising him from the dead. The time of ignorance is over. Why the time of ignorance God overlooked before? Time of idolatry, people creating God. Those days are over because of the gospel and the death and resurrection of Jesus because that act by God removes all doubt as to who the true God is And now he commands all men to repent of their idolatry, to repent of this idea of creating God in their own mind, a God that works for them, repent of their false belief of God, because he has fixed a day where the person he raised is going to judge the world. So let's read on. How do they respond? Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some began to sneer, this is verse 32. Some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But when some men joined him and believed, among whom all, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite. I guess he lived on Areopagus. Is that an Areopagite lives? And a woman named Damaris and others with them. 
So what was the response? Really three different categories. You had the sneers and the scoffers. They're all S's. Sneers and scoffers. We get that today, don't we? Stallers. Get that. And then some were saved. But a lot of them missed the good news. So let's talk about how people today miss the good news. And I sort of came up with six categories. Maybe this is my modern-day breakdown of Epicurean Stoics and idol worshipers. But they're just six different categories, and I hope you'll see that these sort of kind of get closer to home. Six different categories, ways that we miss the gospel. Let's start with a broad one. You may know somebody like this. People who just reject the the idea of a spiritual realm. Reject the idea of a God who create, created the world and wants relationship. Now, that could manifest itself in a hostile way. You know, the atheist who hates believers or, or, or hates people who have faith and mocks. You have some of those. But I, I know a lot that are actually kind of harmless. I think of one guy at my work who I've actually um, you know, worked with quite a bit and consider him a friend. He's a nice guy. If you talk to him, he'll say, I remember having this conversation one night, he said, yeah, I just never really gave much thought about the existence of God. Seemingly a nice, harmless guy, more or less an agnostic, just because he's never really given the existence of God much thought. The problem with that is that's not really how God created us. I like the, the, the Psalm 8. This is the psalm that begins from David. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. And it's a great passage. When I consider the stars and the, and, the, and the sun and the heavens, what is man, right? Then he goes on to make a distinction. He says, he has made, talks about man. He has made man a little lower than angels. And he's given him dominion over the beasts of the field. So you think about it positionally, right? He's made man just a little lower than angels, not not with the beasts of the field, a little lower than angels, to have a relationship with God, not to be like a beast that grazes and works hard, eats grass. Now, one might say, what's so bad about that? What's so wrong with a hardworking beast of the field that eats grass? The problem with it is that the fallen world and the field is only so big, and there's only so much grass, and there's a lot of other beasts. And that creates a world, a very dog-eat-dog world. Always be closing culture. Generate clients, generate income. Any, anybody who's in a business where you have to get new clients or generate income or generate sales understands this. If that's, if that's it, the cutthroat world. I watched a movie about a week or two ago that probably not too many of you are familiar with, called Glen Gary, Glen Ross. And it's a real estate deal movie. One of the things that's great about it is an amazing cast, Ed Harris, Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin. But, the, but it's about a real estate office where they're fighting over leads to, to sell real estate. And it's a very cutthroat atmosphere. And it's always be closing. Nothing else matters. And you watch this movie and you go, if that's really all it is, what hope do you have in that kind of world? If that was really my whole life, I, I could never justify spending time coaching mock trial. It just wouldn't pencil out because it's got to be all about closing, making the next sale. The truth of the matter is 
there is no, it's not the, the unspiritual beast, which I'll call them, is neither harmless or happy. And they've missed the gospel. All right. Let's talk about the next category of person. The person who says, and this is sort of similar to what, uh, what Paul encountered in Greece. But we know a lot of these people. They believe in God, but it's each to his own. There's many ways to God. You know, the plus of this is it avoids conflict. It keeps the peace. One of my good friends, he, he's very proud to say, you know, I've done this for 50 years, and who am I to say that I alone have figured out what the truth is? It almost, it almost, sounds, it almost sounds meek, right? But the problem is, it's a lie, because there's no objective truth. It's basically modern-day idolatry. It's belief in God based on our own feelings, our own wants, what's convenient. That's really the basis of their image of God. And this universal approach is the very thing that Paul condemns in Romans 1, that God revealed himself specifically to man in creation and in Scripture and his son and in his son. And we instead chose to create God. That wasn't good enough. Create God in our own image. So we're condemned for that. Now some will say, well, when we meant well, just our concept of God needed to fit our sense of reason or uh, our lifestyle. But Paul makes it clear there, there's, no, there's no consolation prize for second place. We've, we've fallen short. We've fallen short. If that's what your basis of how you of how you formulate your view of God, there's also a practical downside to this type of thinking about who God is. I seem to always go back to this passage because I, I love it, I, I, and it's it's Jonah. I love this verse when he's in the belly of the whale. One of my favorite verses of the Bible: "Those who cling to idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs." Again, there's no consolation prize for faith in a God of our own creation. Jesus was with the Samaritan woman at the well, made it very clear. God wants to be worshipped in spirit, but also in truth. He wants to be worshipped as a God in all of his attributes, as set forth in Scripture. His holiness, his sovereignty, his immunity, his, excuse me, his immu- immutability. He's immutable, right? Yeah, his, his omniscience and his, and his goodness and his loving kindness. He wants to be worshipped for who he is as in Scripture, not who I want him to be or who, the, the higher power that I've arrived at. You settle on a higher power that you arrive at, you miss the gospel and you forfeit grace. All right. Let's talk about another category. It's the good citizenship, the service type, person who believes in God but has reduced Christian life to an act, a life of service, of citizenship, of ethics. They, they might even look at the Sermon on the Mount as a great code of ethics, of behavior. Following Christ, Christ means a life of service. Social gospel movement in the early 20th century was sort of based on this idea that the Sermon on the Mount was strictly just a code of ethics to be followed, and then all the world would be better. It wasn't about faith, 
wasn't about forgiveness, wasn't about being filled with the Spirit, just living a life of service and citizenship. One of the people that epitomizes this, and this is President's Day weekend, right? So I could talk about presidents a little bit. My daughter gave me a great biography of Thomas Jefferson for Christmas, and I read it in like, it seems like only a couple of weeks. Really, really good. Thomas Jefferson, as we all know, lived a life fighting for our freedom and our liberty and our independence. Interestingly enough, Thomas Jefferson believed in God, and he studied the Bible a lot and learned Hebrew, all kinds of commentaries on the Bible. But in the age of reason, he could not get his brain around things like Jesus is God's son and a virgin birth and miracles or a trinity. So instead, he wrote his own version of the New Testament that kept in the teachings, but cut out all the miracles, all the stuff that reason wouldn't allow him to believe. He gave, he gave lots of money to the American Bible, American Bible Society because, and I quote, there never was a more pure and sublime system of morality delivered to man than is to be found in the four evangelists. That's what he said. But he also believed we are to be saved by our good works, which are within our power, and not by our faith, which is not within our power. That's, that's the conclusion he arrived at. For, Jeff, for, for Jefferson, one of our greatest presidents, the objective was to be honest and dutiful to society. Christian life was about service to our country and to mankind. Now, was it just his interest in reason that got him to this? I, from my reading, I, I don't think it was just that. I think you can't study the life of Jefferson without also recognizing that his life was shaped by a struggle with sin, sexual sin infidelity, the historical fact of him having offspring from his slaves, the struggle with this whole idea of slavery, his, everything he had, his status, his estate, his wealth, was because he was on top of a society that was supported by the great evil of slavery. And it was something he never resolved. He never resolved it for himself, individually, or on a national level. He basically said, that's for another generation to figure out. And 600,000 dead Americans later in the Civil War figured it out, right? He basically gave up trying to resolve the great sin issues in his life. He focused on service and missed the gospel. And ironically, since he was a man that was so interested in independence and liberty. He missed true liberty. I find that ironic about him. That he was so obsessed in being off the shackles of a king and independence and liberty, and yet in his own life, because he didn't want to deal with the sin, he shackled himself with a standard that were to be measured by our service and our citizenship. So, but he missed the gospel, didn't he? Okay. Another category where we miss the gospel, are, and this may be getting a little closer to home, those of us who recognize sin, the sin issue. But we miss the good news when we understate or underappreciate our need on the one hand, and then understate God's gift 
I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, so I actually bought his, brought his book with him today because I wanted to read one thing. He, he did a book on the Sermon on the Mount, and in his sermon on the Beatitude, blessed are they, are, are they that mourn, he said this about this, this whole idea. I cannot help feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. Coupled with that, of course, is a failure to understand the true nature of Christian joy. There is the double failure. There is not the real deep conviction of sin as once was the case. And on the other hand, there is this superficial conception of joy and happiness, which is very different indeed from that which we find in the New Testament. This, thus, the defective doctrine of sin and the shallow idea of joy working together of necessity produce a superficial kind of person and a very inadequate kind of Christian life. I really like the way he put that. And now I lost my place. No. But then he also said this. They have failed to see that they must be convicted of sin before they can ever experience joy. Until we really get real with the depths of our depravity without Christ, as David said in Psalm 51, that we're even conceived in sin, and that we're in the path of God's wrath. Until we do that, we are shorting ourselves on joy and fully understanding the full extent of our salvation. Let me try this analogy. So last spring, I had to go to the dermatologist, and initially, it took a little scrape off my arm, and the first call I got told me, well, you got uh, what's called a basal cell, which is a minor, non-spreading form of skin cancer, was the first call I got. Ten days later, they called and said, actually, you have melanoma, and you need to get a PET scan to see if it's all, in your, all throughout your whole body, which led to me getting a PET scan having surgery, and after the surgery, I got another call, and this call said, okay, your margins are clear, the cancer hasn't reached the lymph nodes, and hasn't reached the rest of your body. Now, I think the answer is obvious. Which call do you think brought me more joy, right? Obviously, the second one. Because, trust me, I had a much greater sense of my need but the second one, the deeper we understand the extent we are lost, the more joy we experience. And this should be a process that we repeat. That shouldn't just be a one-time thing. I was a sinner, now I'm saved and I'm happy. It should be a constant rediscovery of the gospel, rediscovery of other ways you've been saved, other parts of your sinful nature that God's forgiven you for. That should be an ongoing process, an ongoing discovery. And the other half of this equation is we understate the value, the completeness of the gift. If you fall into this trap that God requires faith, but he also requires more from me. Faith plus, something we need to do on top of it. That we have to completely solve, for all time's sake, all the sins we struggle with. A friend of mine were having this discussion about sins in our life that we're frustrated with and why do we keep failing and why can't God just give us that pill 
or the combination to the lock that we can figure out and just get past this and never have to struggle. You know, that's the one thing I want to ask God when I'm in heaven is, God, what was, this, you know, what was the solution? What was that combination that I didn't get that could have got me past ever struggling with that sin? And then we sort of realized God would probably just say, uh, I gave you it. It was the cross. That was it. I sent my son. That was, there wasn't anything else, you know? That was the solution. It, I like to say that the easy way to remember this is the secret sauce is the cross, right? The secret sauce is the cross. There isn't anything else. There's not. That's what pays the penalty for your sin. That's what makes up the gap. That's what covers us when we continue to struggle. Does it mean we don't continue to strive against sin? Of course not. But there is no secret combination. We're not going to finally get to a point where, oh, I don't struggle with sin anymore. Isn't that great? No. The secret sauce is the cross. And the better we understand that, the more joy we're going to have and the more we're going to get the gospel. We keep thinking there's some other thing we have to do, some combination we have to figure out. We miss the gospel. All right. Another way I think we miss the gospel, miss the good news, is we lose sight of our destination. Paul set forth that we have this incredible destination. God foreknew and predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ in eternity. It doesn't get any more amazing than that. Before you were born, he decided that I'm going to take you along and I'm going to sanctify you and I'm going to use your sanctification in eternity to glorify my son. That's our destination. But we so easily forget that. We so easily forget that. We confuse accomplishments and milestones and recovery as being our destination when they are really what I think are better thought of as doors. I'm not saying they're bad, but they're doors. They're not your destination. They're doors to new paths on the way to our destination. You understand that? I've had, to be completely candid with you, I've had several seasons in my life the last couple years where I've had to go through some things. I had a season dealing with alcohol, and I had to attend a lot of 12-step meetings and deal with that issue in my life. And I had a season dealing with health and fitness. I spent a lot of time going to the gym and being around people who are dealing with that issue in their life. And one of the things I've learned in the last couple of years is that it's very easy to think of sobriety as a destination, as your destination. And there's a lot of people that think that way. My purpose in life now, my reason for existing is to be sober, is to overcome that thing. Same thing with fitness. Easy to think of fitness and health as your destination. And I see people live that way. They're not. And you know what else isn't? Graduation isn't a destination. Marriage is certainly not a destination. Promotion in your job. Getting the kids out of the house. That sounds like a destination, doesn't it? It's not. It's a door. And guess what? Nor is retirement. That's another one we think, boy, I know people, their whole purpose for existing. I know people who, they have worked backwards from 
They know the, the day, this is the day they're going to retire, and they chart themselves back, and all the decisions they make are to make sure nothing distracts, nothing gets away from that plan, that on February blank, 2021, you know, that's, that's not a destination. None of these things are destination. They're doors. Again, I'm not saying they're bad. They're, they're, they're doors to a much greater destination. They're like rooms or levels, pardon the analogy. The rooms or levels in a lifelong video game called sanctification. You know what I mean? They're levels you progress through. It's one of my favorite analogies. But I think that's also part of getting the gospel, remembering our actual destination and not getting stuck in these places. They're doors. They're great doors. You may have to go from one to the other, but there's this destination that we can't lose sight of. Finally, maybe this is the most challenging and soul-searching in terms of missing the good news. In Romans 1, Paul describes himself as set apart for the gospel. Are we set apart for the gospel? Is it your priority? Do we remove sources of temptation in our life for the gospel? Hebrews, writer of Hebrews talks about throwing off weights and encumbrances. Again, these aren't necessarily bad things, but they're distractions. They're burdens. They're time sucks. They're things that make us less available for God's calling on our lives. The writer of Hebrews says, throw off those weights and encumbrances. Are we doing that? Is the gospel our primary purpose or just a pastime? God did not raise Christ Jesus from the grave. He raised Jesus from the grave to give you a holy calling, not a hobby. Not a hobby to keep you occupied. It's a holy calling, not a hobby. All right, a few weeks ago, I was talking to Chad outside and I was entertaining, I was engaging in an enter, attempted at an entertaining Easter rant about the song, Counted Up the Cost. They're kind of making fun of it. Emily, I don't know if Emily's here today. Emily's smart as a whip. She's actually wicked smart, not me. But anyway, and Emily comes up, she hears what we're talking about, and in one sentence, she killed off my rant. Because Emily just said, well, it's based on the scripture. Now, let me just say this. I hate it when my rants get shut down. But Emily was right. Because in Philippians 3, Paul recounts his life. He recounts all of his accomplishments. He recounts all the things he's gained. But he says, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He had counted, he had counted up the cost And it was worth it to be set apart for the gospel. So don't miss the gospel. Let your thought life be set apart for the gospel. Let your education be set apart for the gospel. Your marriages and your finances, let them be set apart for the gospel. Your career, set it apart for the gospel. And here's one, even this one. Let your life struggles and failures, even they, can and should be set apart and used by God 
for the good news, the real news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our creator. And in the good news, the gospel, you give us hope in a dog-eat-dog, always-be-closing world. You give us the grace that only comes from being reconciled with the one sovereign God, the gospel that deals with sin in our lives and gives us true liberty. The gospel that reminds us of what we've been saved from and gives us repeated joy of our salvation. The gospel that takes us through these amazing doors in our life, progressing towards the great, glorious destination you have set for us. Lord, work on us, work in our hearts, convict us. What's not set apart in our lives, Lord? What needs to be set apart? What do we need to set apart in our life to be devoted to the gospel? Give us a good day now, Lord, and work in our hearts. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that it's not fake news. Thank you that we have the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.